1: We're very used to having words and images integrated. It's just like completely natural, right? But somehow in books, there's been this like segregation of words and images in adult books. And I guess I combine words and images because I didn't think I should not
0: Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas.
2: And I'm your other host, Isaac Butler.
0: Isaac, how are you? And whose voice did we hear at the top of the show?
2: Things are going pretty well right now, Jude. I, I think my big challenge is, for whatever reason, I don't seem to want to sleep past five thirty in the morning. Oof. And so this week, I'm trying a new thing of not fighting it, and instead I'm just getting up at five thirty and you know walking the dog or exercising or whatever, just to see what that is like. And what that is like is by lunch I need an app. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but anyway, back to our show. Um, Our guest this week is the writer and artist Lauren Redness, who has been a trailblazer in a career of doing what she calls illustrated nonfiction.
0: So you just called it illustrated nonfiction. I've read a couple of her earlier books, and Mm -hmm. it's clear that they're not graphic novels and they're not comics, but art and illustration and images are absolutely central to the way they work. It is a really interesting but kind of sui generis format, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's funny, as you'll hear in the interview, you know, to her, she's just sort of like, well, this always made sense to me. I don't understand what's so weird about it. Um, and that's part of why I wanted to talk to her, because they aren't comics. It's not what, you know, to use some of our previous guests, it's not what Mira Jacob or Joe Sacco or Alison Bechdel are are doing, because the images aren't in sequence. The key to comics is that the images exist in sequence with one another. It's called sequential art. Her art is not sequential, um, but the way that I think about it is that the pages are are highly composed. You know, the text is another graphical element along with the image. And so you're thinking about how the text and images interplay with one another. But that interplay is different from what it's like in comics.
0: Mm. And why did you want to speak with her now?
2: Well, I mean... Part of it's just she's a writer and artist who I admire, and I think Mm -hmm. her work is really interesting, and, you know, uh, why not? But another is that her most recent book, Oak Flat, recently came out in paperback. Oak Flat is journalistic. It's a reported-out book. It's about a still-ongoing dispute over this land in Arizona that is both sacred to the Apache uh, and also rich in copper, you know, a metal that we're only going to need more and more of— in the coming years. And so it's about the kind of dispute between this gigantic mining company and the everyday people who, you know, use this land for sacred rights and uh, to whom it's very, very important. Um, the fight over Oak Flat is not over yet, which is a really interesting position to be writing a book from as well. Um, and I, I just find her work and her process fascinating. And I, I thought she'd have a lot of interesting stuff to say.
0: Indeed. Well, I'm really excited to hear this interview. But first, I believe you have an extra segment that's just for Slate Plus members. What will they hear?
2: Yes, we're talking about a bunch of different things in that section. But the one that I'm most excited about is we're talking about how to start with the unknown. You know, at the beginning of a project, you might not know everything that you're doing. In fact, you might not know anything that you're doing. So how do you make your peace with that or maybe even learn to enjoy that part of the process and, and turn it into a fruitful and inspirational, you know, part of what you do. Exciting. So, hey, why not join Slate Plus? Why not?
0: Indeed, come on. As a member, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site and member exclusive episodes and segments from Working, as well as other shows like The Culture Gab Fest and The Waves. To learn more about becoming a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com Working Plus. All right, let's hear Isaac's conversation with Lauren Redness.
2: Lauren Redness, thank you so much for joining us here on Working.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Your bio describes what you do as illustrated nonfiction. Could you explain for our listeners what we mean when we say illustrated nonfiction? Because it's not like comics. It's not just prose. It's something in between. What What is it?
1: Right. Like you say, they're not graphic novels. I don't do comics. I don't know how to do panels. I don't know how to draw the same figure over and over. That wouldn't work for me. Um, and I, they're not children's books, but they're visual. And um, I think... For me, what seems unconventional is something that feels very natural to me. And um, I often make the analogy to like film or something like that, where we're very used to having words and images integrated. It's just like completely natural, right? But somehow in books, there's been this like segregation of words and images in adult books. And I guess I combine words and images because I didn't... Think I shouldn't. It just seemed like why wouldn't you write a nonfiction book that also had a visual element? Because images convey other types of information and emotion in ways that are unique and feel to me often appropriate or meaningful.
2: Mm. You know, I do feel like though that does create some. <laughs> <laughs> some challenges of like explaining it when you have to sell right. the book. I mean, maybe, maybe this is just me <laughs> thinking about this. Cause you know, I just had a book out and I've got to think about what the next one, but like, how did you figure out how to explain what you do so that you could actually like get the money you need to do your work?
1: I used to do a lot of work for the New York times and um, these kind of op art pieces that did combine images and text. And um, so I had a a little track record there on the op-ed page of doing these kind of narrative nonfiction, single panel images. But then you're right. When I came to doing a book, which seemed to me like the most natural thing in the world, I was going to do this biography. It was going to be a visual biography of the last living Ziegfeld girl. I had all this incredible archival material that I was integrating in these photo collages. And I made a dummy book. And I, you know, I found an agent, and um, I showed it to her, she pitched it around town, like crickets, you know, no one was interested at all, her assistant wouldn't even call me back. So yeah, basically, it was a really hard sell. And it was kind of, um, the only way it worked out was complete fluke and serendipity, like these kind of things that can happen sometimes in New York City, you know, um, I was having dinner, take out Indian food at a friend's apartment, and a friend of his w- had her own imprint at HarperCollins, and he said to her, oh, Lauren's working on this project, you know, you sh- she should tell you about it. So I told her, and she said, oh, yeah, let's do that. And I thought, <laughs> but, you know, not- that things don't happen like that, that's not right. for real. But, um, but she gave me her card, and we met, and she gave me a very small book advance, but I knew it was an incredible opportunity to do this weird project with a trade publisher. And, um, and I think once that book was done, then, it, you know, people could envision it because it existed in that sort of open doors.
2: Totally. Yeah. Once the thing exists, you can point to it, but it, when it all is like, I'm just using language to describe this complicated thing, you know, they, they can get a little lost in that.
1: I was told explicitly, like, this isn't going to work. Like, the one publisher who called me back after seeing the dummy book was like, basically, like, here are all the reasons why this is not an option. You can't make (laughs) this book.
2: (laughs) That's funny. Yeah. You know, it's when we were doing um, The World Only Spins Forward. We had trouble convincing some people, not the editor we eventually went with, but we had trouble convincing some people to do a pure oral history that had no prose in it at all. That was only quotes, even though those things exist. Yeah. I mean, that's a that's a time-honored tradition, but they'd be like, I yeah. don't really get it. It's going to be just a bunch of quotes. It's like, y- yes, it's an oral history. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I'm not a visual artist. I like visual art, but I, I don't have an art background. And so I sometimes have trouble describing it. So can I add, do you have language that you use to describe your drawing style?
1: I don't think of myself as having a style, I guess. I think of myself, I mean, I know I have like um, a kind of handwriting in my drawings, but I try to avoid the idea of style, I guess, because it Mm. seems to imply something that would be applied in a kind of blanket way the same to everything and I really try to allow the visual language of any given project to emerge from the subject matter and um to be driven by whatever that project feels like it needs like what it wants to say you know what the material requires so yeah that's why I guess my books each look kind of different the first one's a photo collage book the second one is made in cyanotype prints the third one's a copper plate etchings of my most recent book is um colored pencil drawings.
2: Did you train as a visual artist or did you have to teach yourself how to do all of this stuff when you realized that you wanted to combine these things?
1: Yeah, my background is more in visual art than it is in writing. So that's what I thought I would do is be a painter, I guess, at a certain point and then I took a detour.
2: <laughs> and did you feel like, you know, um, we had Mira Jacob on this show a while ago oh, okay. and she had to teach herself how to draw cause she came from a prose writing background. Did you feel like you had yeah. to teach yourself how to write because you came from a visual art background? Like, did you have to kind of drill yourself into try to figure out the, the writing component of it? Cause that wasn't where you started.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And that was really, um, a challenge for me, and somewhere where I didn't feel confident or comfortable. I actually I heard you in, on a podcast recently talk about how you handwrite your first mm-hmm. draft. Sometimes, and, um,
2: yeah,
1: yeah, that really struck a chord with me because m- my first book is handwritten, and. It turned out, while it's like a massively inefficient way to write a book, right, <laughs> or to edit a book for sure, but, um, but it also is a great tool in a sense because it really forces you to be so judicious with your words and to not, you know, waste any space um, because it's like literally painful to keep mm-hmm. physically writing those words.
2: Right. Totally. I mean, that's really interesting that you talk about the concision that handwriting kind of forces on you, because I do feel like I can see that in Oak Flat because the, the prose is not florid. It's not exactly minimalist, but, you know, the prose is very judicious. Judicious is probably a good way to put it in terms of, you know, a sentence contains, you know, really exactly the number of words it needs, not one more, you know. <laughs> and so you can really feel that in uh, the legacy of that, I feel like, in your work.
1: Right. It's come to be something that I use deliberately as opposed to because I felt like I have no choice. <laughs>
2: right. right. Uh, well, this is all a good segue to talk about Oak Flat, which is a wonderful, wonderful book recently out in paperback. And it tells the, uh, I guess, still unfinished saga of an Apache community that is fighting an international mining conglomerate for control over sacred lands that are rich in copper, a metal that you point out in the book uh, that's only going to get more important in our day to day lives as we attempt to switch to clean energy, right? Copper's in everything but. It's really important for uh, solar panels, windmills, and, and things of that nature. So how did you learn that this story was brewing? What, what? How did you get interested in it?
1: Yeah, I had actually started a different project. And then there was a short op-ed in the Times about the situation. And it something in it just clicked for me. And I could just feel all of these different complexities at play and the tension, like you say, with you know, the need for copper versus the destruction that it would cause to obtain it. And um, so I just started making cold calls and um, going out to Arizona to report.
2: And I mean, when you say making cold calls and going out to Arizona, you just showed up and said, hey, will you talk to me about this? Or I mean, was it that simple?
1: Well, so at the center of this controversy is a man named Wenzler Nosey, and he's the former tribal chairman of the San Carlos Apache tribe, and he's also the kind of um, principal voice of the opposition to the mine. So he's founded a group called the Apache Stronghold, and um, so as soon as you start looking into this situation, you'll come across Wenzler's name. So I managed to find his phone number and I called him at home, I talked to his wife, and. She was like, oh, yeah, Wensor's in the backyard. I can get him. So I talked to Wensler on the phone for a while, and I, I just asked him, could I come visit you? And so, that, yeah, that's how it started. And um, his whole family is really involved. So through him, I met his daughter, his granddaughters, um, his wife. Like So I was able to kind of um, interview and profile that entire family. And then the communities are small, like the local town, the non-native local town where the mine would be, you know, I basically met people simply sitting on main street because there it's such a tiny place. You're very conspicuous.
2: One of the subjects in the, the town, they meet anyone who comes through, right? They, they have this quote about how like they're you know, if you were a stranger, when you enter the town, they're going to immediately meet you and talk to you and get to know you.
1: Yeah. They're just incredible. That's exactly what happened. I walked into a cafe and they're sitting there and they're just, where are you from? Have a seat. And like, you know, four hours later I had like, Oh my God! The most incredible stories.
2: How many trips to Arizona did you take while reporting out the book?
1: Many. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have kids, so I couldn't like just move there and embed. But I was just like frequently traveling out there and spending as much time as I could.
2: So it seems to me that it's a creative challenge, it's a logistical challenge, it's a human challenge. Earning the interview subjects' trust, right, is so important. Um, did you feel like you and Wensler, did you have a sort of an immediate bond and then he kind of introduced you and that made it easier? Were there things you felt like you needed to do to establish very quickly to him that you were someone that he could trust with his story?
1: Yes. But I mean, it just feels really natural. I think like, I think when I went out there, I'm just there to listen. And so I just, I'm there to like put in the time and to listen. And so what we ended up doing on our, my first trip out there was like his pickup truck, and there's a lot of driving. There's a lot of space to cover in, you know, driving from the San Carlos Apache Reservation to Oak Flat to, you know, the local towns to wherever, you know, errands he needed to run. So I just sat with him in his pickup truck and we drove around for days on end and just talked. And, um, you know, he, he took me to the open pit mines that are in this same area because it, it's a area of Arizona called the Copper Corridor where there is a lot of mining and you know we spent time at his house his wife cooked us these incredible meals and we literally would go to Oak Flat take out the trash drive to the dump I mean so it was just like spending time and um, listening and asking questions probably some of which were dumb but you know just trying to engage in the way you engage with anyone with respect yeah
2: So how does the eventual form, you know the form this is going to take, it's going to combine words and images in some way. You might not have figured out what those things are going to be when you start, but you know you're going to be drawing major parts of this story. It'll have fewer words on the page. It'll have a different relationship to page design, all those things. How does that inform or shape your process as you're gathering material and reporting?
1: So I knew, like in my previous books that the design is a little bit more um, front and center in the way the narrative is communicated. sometimes the text and images are in are integrated in kind of complicated ways like the text runs through the images maybe it's upside down maybe it's you know it's not necessarily square on the page in this book I you know because I was handling a subject, like you say, where the situation is still ongoing, where the stakes are very high for the communities involved, I wanted to be kind of as humble and restrained as possible. So whereas in my previous books, I like designed the typeface for the book. In this case, I chose Garamond, which is you know, a very common font, very neutral, like what typographers would refer to as transparent. It doesn't draw attention to itself. And so the text is actually pretty traditional in the way it's presented in most of this book. And I knew I wanted the images to be mostly portraits and landscapes. So you have a sense of the people and a sense of the place. And then in certain chapters, the text moves into kind of mystical or supernatural realms and in those cases I felt like I had more freedom with the drawings to reflect those ideas but primarily at the at least at the beginning sort of third two-thirds of the book the drawings are very straightforward and I knew that from the beginning that they would be and that's one of the reasons I use colored pencil it's just a very direct very simple medium
2: yeah, I also feel like, you know, the texture of the paper you're drawing on even is recreated. I mean, uh, you know, you can see the texture of the original paper in the book itself.
1: Right, which wasn't necessarily intentional, but I, but like you maybe felt hopefully it just like gives it that kind of tactile intimacy, I hope.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so are you taking a lot, are you sketching a lot while you're there or do you take tons of reference photos? Are you drawing on memory or Google Street View or, you know? How, <laughs> Uh, I know they're not realistic or not photorealistic drawings. You know, they they have a real style. You're not trying to say this is realistically this person. But still, you must have been referencing off of something, right?
1: Right. Um, as you say, yeah, I'm drawing from life on site. And also, I take a lot of reference photos that I can refer to. and And I just make notes, like what strikes mm. me.
0: We'll be back with more of Isaac's conversation with Lauren Redness. Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Listeners, we want to hear from you, whether it's to ask us for advice on a creative problem, tell us a guest you'd like to hear on the show, or share your own creative triumphs. Drop us a line at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304 933 WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working. Wherever you listen to podcasts. Now let's return to Isaac's conversation with Lauren Redness.
2: One thing that I really noticed about this, as opposed to, you know, a lot of the kind of comic book nonfiction or graphic nonfiction, is that you're not really a character in this book, you know, whereas, like, um, to take a couple of you know, earlier guests, you know, um, Alison Bechdel is always a character in an Alison Bechdel book. Joe Sacco is always a character in a Joe Sacco book. You're really not You're our eyes and ears on the ground, but I don't know. There's the first person pronouns only in it like a handful of times, right?
1: Well, it's funny to think about it in terms of drawing in a way, because like you say, I'm not in the text almost at all, but I feel like drawing kind of insists on its own subjectivity, Right. In a very transparent way, like you say, like these drawings, like you recognize the hand, you recognize that a person has interpreted this scene. So I feel like I'm present in that. And that's like a way of kind of showing my hand and um, being kind of direct about that level of subjectivity. But I guess I I don't know, like, yeah, I just don't feel like my presence. I mean, if it, unless it's adding something specific, I'm not going to put it in, I suppose,
2: yeah, and you're also not dictating our point of view on this material. I mean, you have these right. various voices and these various opinions. But, I mean, I think it's pretty clear <laughs> you're wary of the mining company, for example. It's not like you're going to read Oak right. Flat and be like, Ah, oh, Lauren Redness, really, you know, I think she's a fan of this mining company. But She loves but the Toxic
1: same, Waste. Yeah. See, big,
2: huge Toxic Waste fan. Huge fan from back in the day. She has its original EP. Uh, but, the, but you're not... Um, you know, you're still you're not tipping the scales too much. You're not weighing in too much.
1: I think what I'm trying to do is allow all of the figures in the book to have their kind of like full complexity. For instance, the people who are pro mine in this local town, and um, and even like there's a native guy in the book who works for the mine. And um, he, you know, talks about his point of view. And I wanted to be really respectful of these different perspectives. And um, I guess I think about it in terms of power dynamics, like the mine and the politicians who are allowing this to happen, they can be held accountable. But people on the ground level who are just trying to, like, make a living and put food on the table for their family, they're not the people I want to be holding to account in the same way.
2: Mm-hmm. It's interesting because, you know, you have this mountain of material, all the interviews you've done, the photos you've taken, the, the sketches, the notes, the research, because there's lots of research in this book beyond the the reportage and the interviews. Uh, now you got to arrange it into a book, you know, you've got to structure it and structure is so deeply important to nonfiction. And I found the structure of this book so elegant and I was really wondering how you for example figured out that we're going to start and end in outer space right because it starts in outer space and then it sort of has this wonderful book where you take us into outer space or the the coming of age story preparing for the the sunrise dance like sort of the spine of the book you know we keep coming back to that or or when we get the points of view of the white people you know I, i'm just sort of curious about how you figured all that out and whether it was easy and intuitive or you had to go back into it or or what
1: well, I start with a kind of chapter list, like a provisional chapter list, and then I'm making slight adjustments to that. I think my original chapter list was just the titles of, I mean, not um, the names of different people who appear in the book. And, um, and I thought I would have these different perspectives and maybe that people would show up again. And then I scrapped that, obviously. But um, one thing I usually know is that I want to have some, I knew this, for one thing, the situation wouldn't be resolved. So I had that in my mind. This is something I'm going to have to navigate. Um, So I had to think about that. But that didn't necessarily seem like a problem to me because I think what I'm looking for in an ending is that it's satisfying on its own terms and the terms of the book, but that it's not necessarily a resolution, right? It's not tidy. I like things to remain open-ended and that you leave some tension in the air. Um, And in terms of like the beginning and outer space, so... um, that section was originally part of chapter four. And after like, you know, the book was all written, I, the beginning wasn't working. I could tell it wasn't working. It needed like a kind of, um, I don't know, just a different orientation. And so when I pulled that chapter out and put it at the beginning, it rearranged, I think the whole way the book was situated because it gave this different timescale, right? Because you start, you know, billions of years ago with these (laughs) formation of the solar system. And then you you zoom in and you zoom in and you zoom in. And so you're oriented in time and space in this corner of Arizona, but having been situated in this grander world and cosmos.
2: Yeah. You know, one thing I've become, you know, a little interested in over the last year is this idea of, you know, deep time of thinking of time beyond the human scale of time and your book really does that you know we start billions of years ago and and in a way it's interesting because the mine you know we might all be retired by the time that mine gets built if the mine gets built at all and we'll pro- and if it does get built we'll be dead by the time it ceases operation like it, it, it we're talking about these long long spans of time that we don't really control or yeah. aren't always able to perceive and think in that kind of scale
1: and it's interesting that you put it that way about the mine because it- to me, that would be a greater incentive to do something that has a more positive long-term <laughs> impact on the earth.
2: <laughs> yeah, You would, you would think, you would think right. that would be, you know, even though we're huge fans of toxic waste here on working, right. it would be, uh, it would be much better to do something else. Yeah. Um, I am really curious about how you handle quotations in the book because you've said, you know, you, in your earlier work, text is almost graphic, right? It's is, it is basically a graphic element. And that's less true in this book. But at the same time, often a quotation is not appearing within quotation marks. You get the speaker's name and then a colon and then the quote. Um, and then sometimes you break up the quotes from them until they become almost like these little poems that accompany the drawings. Uh, and I'm just interested about you know how you approach dialogue, how you approach using these transcripts in your work.
1: The first time I I sort of had to incorporate dialogue onto a page was for an op art piece I did for the New York Times. And I had a limited amount of space and a lot uh, in a conversation. So I was going back and forth between two figures. And I knew word balloons wouldn't work. It would just be a complete mess and totally illegible. So... I thought of it like a play, like I was like, oh, okay, here you see which speaker is very clear, mm-hmm. It's you know, easy to follow. So I think that's my primary motivation is simplicity and clarity. And I think because I had like established that way of showing dialogue, I sort of stopped questioning it. It's just mm-hmm. like, um, you know, it seemed to work, it seemed people seem to know what was going on. So I didn't really see a reason to change it. And I guess, I think, I don't know, it's part of, like, you're, you talked about oral history, and I like to kind of click into that tradition.
2: So what was the revision process like for this book? I mean, you spoke earlier a little bit about some light restructuring of the book. But, you know, were you changing out drawings or redoing the drawings, too? Or, or you know, like, what was it once you had a draft? You know, how did you get from that to the version that we see today?
1: I redo the drawings a lot and the text, Yeah, it's just kind of like going over it and going over it and going over
2: it. Were were there specific problems in Oak Flat that ran throughout that you needed to figure out how to solve? Problems is probably maybe putting it badly, but you know, like a specific kind of mission you had on the revision process?
1: One challenge for me is always to get the technical things right, like the things that you want a reader's eyes to skate over, but to be clear, you know, which are probably yeah. like the, sometimes the most tedious to research, like how block cave mining works or, you know, right. some some very technical thing or like. What's the yeah, model the number
2: ma- of this machine or. <laughs> right.
1: yeah. So I think like, yeah, getting that right and getting the history right. Also, like, you know, just being very conscious as a non-Native person, writing about Indigenous culture, religion, you know, all of that. I think I, I lost a lot of sleep just really trying to make sure I got it right, both in the process of reporting and in the writing itself, in, you know, sharing the final work with the families I who had trusted me with their time and stories. So I think that was probably the... Most important thing, and almost always, is the most important. You know, of course, you know, writing as a non-native person writing about native people—that's especially acute feeling. But it's something that I experience with anyone that I'm writing about. In a in a certain way, they're always like my only audience. Mm-hmm. Not that the goal is to flatter, but it's to respect, I think, and honor the what they've trusted me with.
2: Yeah, you want to do right by the story, right? You want to you want to tell the truth, and it's hard when. If you do something that makes someone feel like you haven't told the truth about them or haven't told their story truthfully.
1: Definitely. Right. And I feel like, yeah, if you don't do that in the in the writing and in the reporting and in like every aspect of the process, it undermines like what the book is doing. Ultimately, Mm -hmm. like I don't think the book can have integrity unless you've done those
2: things. Did your subjects get to read excerpts prior to publication or did you give it to them once it was done and once it was out in the world? You know, what was it like showing them what you made out of their stories?
1: Yeah, so I didn't share it in progress, but I did bring like about 10 months before publication, I brought the book to uh, like a galley copy I guess I can't remember um I mean the the timing was weird because of the pandemic because this book was originally supposed to come out in April it ended up coming out in November but um but yeah so I met up with Wensler and his daughter Vanessa and I showed them the book we sat through it we went through every page and um you know I was nervous but it went really well and that was you know really gratifying and then I mailed the book because of the pandemic I wasn't able to hand the book to the Gorham family, which is the the mining family from the local town, that I also write about. So I mailed it to them, and Jackie Gorham, who's about eighty nine years old, called me up. And you know, he's, I, I was like, oh god, what are they going to make of this? But he said, "Honey, you did a nice job with that book."
2: <laughs> um, I have just sort of a not Oak Flat related question, but just about the creative process, because we were just talking about this uh, for an episode of Working Overtime a little bit, and so I just wanted to ask you. What do you do when you're stuck? Do you get writer's block? And if you do get writer's block, what do you do to get out of it?
1: I don't get anything I consciously think of as writer's block. But I have anxiety or fear of, you know, picking up the phone and, you know, making that first phone call or something like that. So there are not so much like creative blocks as they are just like. You know, psychological. Yeah. Kind of. yeah. Um, right. The uncomfortable
2: parts of the nonfiction writer's job. Yeah.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So um, I think coffee and just like mind over matter, <laughs> basically. Yeah. And those walks, those walks really help. Like, cer- there are certain friends that I turn to for, you know, cheerleading.
2: Yeah. Tell me to pick up the phone. Tell me to pick up the phone. <laughs> exactly. Well, Lauren Redness, thank you so much for joining us on Working to talk about your work and your process. And I just love the book. And so it's such a joy to get to talk to you about it.
1: Oh, it's a total honor to be on your show and to talk with you. Thank you.
0: Isaac, that was an amazing interview. I somehow missed the publication of Oak Flat, which I have now rectified. I'll be reading it very soon. I have to say, my mind is boggled by the scale of Lauren's ambition and creativity. I mean, it's one thing to say I want the style to emerge from the subject matter, but using a different kind of art and even like reproduction method every time, Well, that's just next level. I'm struggling to think of a text-only equivalent beyond maybe using a completely different language for every book that you write.
2: Yes, yes. My next one will be in Esperanto, (laughs) and then uh, after that, uh, Cantonese. Yeah. No, I mean the breadth of knowledge or willingness to learn you have to have to radically change the visual medium of each of your works. That's pretty vast, and it's very impressive. I think the closest thing in writing just. Writing, qua writing, is that, you know, some writers have a prose style that really emerges out of the work they're doing. And some writers have a fairly consistent voice from work to work. And really, either approach is valid. You don't have to reinvent the wheel every time, you know, but I do think that it's healthy to think about. What is the most appropriate style or visual vocabulary or, you know, whatever your art form is for this particular project? You know, that that is a good question to ask oneself uh, or to think about or even just have at the back of your head. You don't have to sit there and like make a list, you know, but it's just it's, it's a good thing to think about because different projects require different things from us as artists.
1: Yeah.
0: Lauren Redness is clearly a hugely successful author, both in terms of the impact her work has on readers and I believe in terms of sales. But I have to admit, I have a tiny, tiny bit of sympathy for those publishers who now seem like idiots for passing on that first project, The Century Girl. Because every time you publish a book that isn't just the typical text with maybe a few photos in a separate section, You are adding expense and complexity to the project. So while I'm very glad that they've now gotten over that and we have these beautiful, really kind of genuinely bespoke books, it is a big ask. So, Isaac, am I just a corporate shill?
2: Yeah, man. Yeah, you're just a sellout. (laughs) I'm going to sit here and drink my OK Cola. (laughs) while uh thinking about all the selling out you're doing i don't know this isn't you know no but I, i get the point that you're making and you know it's not just about the expense of manufacturing the books which is true you know the physical object does cost a different amount to make depending on how many pages it has what kind of paper it is what the size is all of those things really do impact the bottom line but the other thing is you know how do you package it market it sell it in such a way that booksellers reviewers journalists everything like that are going to know what it is and want to work with it that's a real challenge those marketing channels exist for a reason and they've evolved for a reason and sometimes yeah. that that can get very confining and oppressive and sometimes though if you fit into one of those channels that's great because then you can just kind of you know do it i mean you Even when Dan and I were doing The World Only Spins Forward, which is an oral history, which is a very well-known format that has existed for a very long time, not every editor we met with kind of understood why it would work or how it was gonna to work to have an entire book that was just, you know, quotes from people yeah. arranged in kind of an artful way, even though we could point to all these other great ones and say, it will be like that, you know? Um luckily we've then found uh Ben Hyman who did see it and did understand it. Um I guess where my sympathy ends though is that it's just hard for me to imagine holding one of her books You know, looking at how this text and image is and just not being excited about that and not being like, yes, I want to get this into the world. I want to figure out a way to get it into the world. I can understand having it described to you by an agent being like, I don't really understand how that's going to work. But once you see it, once you actually have it, that's the part that doesn't make sense to me, honestly.
0: Yeah. Now, this might sound crazy from someone who doesn't even know how to drive, but The way Lauren got to spend so much time with Wensley Nosey, riding around in his pickup truck as he did chores and activism, and just generally went about his life, sounds like a nonfiction writer's dream. Long distances, long drives, lots and lots of time with your subject.
2: Wait, 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 wait. We have to pause here for one second. Mm -hmm. You don't know how to drive?
0: No, I've never even had a lesson. It's not for everyone, Isaac. It's not for everyone.
2: Aren't you going to be moving out of our wonderful city with its public transportation to somewhere, you know, wherever you move? Are you going to be able to get around just walking everywhere?
0: Well, uh, hopefully, yes, we are moving. But yeah, you know, I've always been careful to choose destinations that have public transportation or that are walkable. Um, In America, it's not easy not to drive, but it's really not all that impossible either. I have to say, too, that if you don't drive, you develop a particular kind of creativity, which is kind of becoming a good passenger like mm-hmm. i'm always very you know creative in my stories in my uh you know my the service that i provide You're to great the driver at rolling cigarettes <laughs> with one hand yes with one hand uh, yeah, yeah 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 it's not driving isn't that big of a deal but unless unless of course you live in arizona uh where yeah i imagine there midlife life pretty much impossible
2: yeah, pretty much. Okay, so now to, to segue to your actual <laughs> question. Speaking of Arizona, that was a good callback. Yeah, I think as a journalist, anytime you can engineer a way to just spend a lot of time around your subject that's not just the two of you across a table talking is great because you wind up getting really interesting stuff. Their walls come down. They're often less self-conscious about their performance in front of you, you know, and, and some interesting stuff can happen. It's also really helpful if you can spend a lot of time just observing. Observing them working, Mm -hmm. you know, whether that's in a rehearsal or, you know, whatever they do, particularly if the job involves talking to other people, just spending some time around them while they do their thing. You're just going to learn a lot from that, that hearing them describe what they do, you know, that has its limits, even though that's what we do on this show.
0: Yes, indeed. I was so struck by your question about structure. I've been listening to John McPhee's book, Draft Number 4, which is mostly about his writing process, and that guy is obsessed with structure. Every piece of writing that he does begins with his figuring out the structure. I am not good at visualising the potential effects of moving something from, like, the middle to the top or moving stuff around. Do you have any tips for experimenting with that kind of restructuring?
2: That's a really interesting question because I do share the McPhee obsession. I, I think in nonfiction, structure is really the heart of the matter. You know, mm. you can't make anything up. So you, you've you got structure and prose style, you know, mm. um, yeah. uh, in, in some ways. It, it's the thing you have the most control over. Um, so I definitely have more thoughts about this than I can get into right now. <laughs> but I will say that the best way to experiment with structure is to be as familiar as possible with as many other structures as you can and how they they work. And I'm not talking about, like, you have to know what Freytag's Pyramid is and what the <laughs> difference is between a three-act structure and a five-act structure is, or, you know, what a braided essay is, or any of that. You don't actually have to know the technical terms. You don't have to go to school for this stuff. What you have to do is read widely. You know what I mean? And when something's working really well, just ask what structurally is going on that's causing this to work so well. Watch a lot of uh, documentaries. If you're a nonfiction person, read a lot of nonfiction comics, you'll go outside of just prose and you'll learn an an enormous amount about structure once you decide to start paying attention to it. You might be the kind of person who comes up with your own vocabulary for that stuff and writes down notes about it, or it might be intuitive. There's no wrong way to do it. You just want to be experiencing it as much as possible and holding on to it so that when you read a passage and you're like, huh, Something about this just isn't working. Just some part of your brain is going to go like, "Oh, you should start in the middle." And then mm. flash back. And you go, "Oh, well, what if I start in the middle and then flash back and then, you know, <laughs> see what happens." Um I would also say there's two books I really want to recommend if this is something that you're thinking about. One is Tell It Slant by Brenda Miller and Suzanne Antonetta. And the other is Refuse to Be Done by Matt Bell. Uh, Tell It Slant is a creative nonfiction textbook. Refuse to Be Done is a book about revising creative writing, mostly Mm -hmm. fiction. But both of them have a lot of great insights and exercises and ideas about structure and fun writing tips and ways to just kind of break things apart and put them back together. Uh, I really, really recommend both. This show
0: always costs me a fortune, but in the best possible way. I'm always very excited (laughs) to uh, to buy all kinds of things that I learn about on this show. I am so envious of the kind of origin story that Lauren described for Oak Flat, that she had read a short op-ed in The Times and the subject matter and all its potential complexities immediately clicked for her. Have you ever had that kind of aha moment for a writing project? Or do you have any advice for how to be open to finding good, juicy subjects?
2: I think that if we're lucky, we have a lot of aha moments. You know, they're Mm. just moments where you hear something or someone tells you a story or, you know, there's something on the radio or whatever. And it just kind of, it gets its claws in you for a bit. And you can't shake the feeling that it might be worth digging into deeper. Yeah. Sometimes it will, sometimes it won't. You don't. You can't really control when it's going to happen because it's your subconscious doing it, you know? So yeah. just don't stress about it. Just be grateful for it when it does happen. But the only way to know whether one of those ideas is going to work at greater length or be worth delving into or whatever is to actually start working on it. You know, you can't figure it out in your head. I really don't think you can. It's like you have this gut feeling of like, I could do something with this. But then you have to sit down and start Doing it. You might want to interview some people. You might want to do, you know, go if it's something in the past, you know, the entire New York Times archive is online. So you might want to keyword search that and start reading some things or go to the library or ask people what they know. Or, you know, you just want to figure out if it has juice because writing a book or making a documentary or, you know, all these things, they're very long projects, you are going to get sick of what you're working on. You are going to get angry at yourself. You are going to think about calling your agent and saying, I need to give the advance back. You know, you have to have an idea that's rich, that's entertaining to you, that's going to be constantly feeding you and being interesting to you because it's got to sustain you through years and you can't discover that abstractly.
0: I'm going to make a clip of the answer that you just gave, and I'm going to play it to myself every
2: (laughs) few months, I think. You are going to get sick of what you're working on. You are going to get angry at yourself. Yeah, halfway through writing the method, I had lunch with my agent, and I was like, you know, there's days where you just, like, want to give the advance back. And she's like, wait, are you joking? Or are you like, (laughs) I've had clients where I've had to kind of do that. I was like, no, 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 no. I'm just saying, you know, some days are just like, oh, my God, what am I doing? All right.
0: Well, we hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. That way you will never miss an episode. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like The Waves and Culture Gabfest, and you will never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus.
2: Thanks to Lauren Redness and to our splendid producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week with June's conversation with sisters and children's book authors Natalia and Lauren O'Hara. Until then, get back to work.